This is Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports. You are listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. Ready to roll? Yes. Cheers, first of all. Cheers. Thanks for doing this. Cheers. Sports Illustrated, Fox Sports, podcaster, and author again. What's going on, Grant? Uh, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I have yet to ask you about the Bayern Munich jersey you're wearing, but I, I'm sure there's a story behind that. We'll get to it. I actually just got into soccer like four years ago, okay. and two years ago went all in. We'll get to it in a second. Nice. So tell me about the book, Masters of Modern Soccer. Your book comes out today. See what we're doing, because we're going to post it during the like day of the that. interview. But sell the book. Tell me what it's about. So it's about the craft of soccer, position by position. And it's a very soccer-centric, soccer-heavy book. You know, a lot of the stuff I've done in the past is storytelling, and I love doing that. But for this book, I got the idea from a classic baseball book by George Will called Men at Work that um, looked at the sport of baseball, uh, the craft of it through its component parts. And he picked four people. He picked a manager, Tony La Russa, a batter, Tony Gwynn, a pitcher, Oral Hershiser, and a fielder, Cal Ripken Jr. And this was in 1991, so it was actually on sort of the early curve on some of these guys. Picked the mm-hmm. right guys, really good at what they did, really smart at explaining how they did their job. And taken together, you get a sort of you know, overall look at the sport, um, the finer points of it. And so you can do that for any sport. No one really has, so I wanted to do that for soccer. And I have seven figures in my book. So five of them are players. The goalkeeper is Manuel Neuer of Bayern Munich, a yep, German yep. national team. The defender is Vincent Kompany of Man City in Belgium. The defensive midfielder is Xabi Alonso, now retired, was at Bayern Munich to finish his career, World Cup winner. Um, the attacking midfielder is Christian Pulisic, the best U.S. player. The forward is Chicharito Hernandez, the marquee Mexican, Mexican player. The manager is Roberto Martinez, formerly of Everton, now the Belgian national team coach, could win the World Cup this summer. And the director of football, the sort of money ball guy, the talent identification guy, is Michael Zork, uh, Borussia Dortmund, who's the best in the business. And that's, that's the book. And generic question, why'd you pick those guys and not more of the known guys when everyone's going to say Ronaldo, Messi, so why not those guys? You know, I've interviewed Messi, and, and he's actually a better interview than most people give him credit for. But like most players, probably 98% of players, he's not great at shedding a lot of light on his genius, his talent, his craft for the sport. And, you know, Messi is never going to be hired to do TV studio work or TV broadcasting. He's just raw talent. Right. And that's an amazing talent. And... So the guys I wanted to pick for this book were guys who could be hired eventually as coaches or as TV analysts who really think the game and are really good in a special way of explaining to us, the lay viewer, right. what it is they do what, and what they're seeing on the field. And so that was really fun for me at the very start of this process to make a list of like, here are the five guys I would like for each position and to some of them I knew before, like Xabi Alonso, I'd interviewed him before. I knew he'd be great. Okay. Some of them, like Vincent Company, I thought would be really good, but wasn't sure. And so I asked some of my European media friends, like, I think this guy, Company, could be really good for a book like this. Is that your understanding? And they're like, yeah. And so once they confirmed that, I then tried to get my top choices for each, <laughs> Obviously. For each spot. Came, you know, got most of them. And then if I didn't get the very top choice, went to the next guy on the list. I knew there were, I didn't have to have one specific person. And then did two years of interviews uh, where I would go to Europe and spend significant time with these guys and watch video for an hour or two hours with these players, peppering them with questions about what's going on and, you know, on the screen. And to their credit they had the patience even with some of my stupid questions <laughs> to to like tell me how they approach things and i do so many media interviews you know post game situations but we never really ask about some of this stuff like you know christian polisic and i talked about his first touch for like 10 minutes among other things a lot of other things in our conversations and it was a really interesting conversation about what he was saying about how he developed his first touch, how he uses his first touch 
to create an advantage, not just to stop the ball and then see what's next. Did it humble you a little bit? Because I'm going to tell you this. We just mentioned Chris Canty. He's one of my closest friends, and I've watched football games with him. And I consider myself one of the most – obviously, I'm going to pat myself. I'm a knowledgeable guy. I know all this. I'm yelling, and I'll never forget. He stopped the game, and he has a little – he had his iPad, and we did a play. And I'm like, the linebacker should have did this. He showed me 10 other things. I'm like, oh, my God. I didn't even know any of that. So the lay fan, like myself – was like, wow, I, I feel like an idiot. I had no idea. So when you watched it with these players, were you like, wow, I didn't even recognize things they recognized? Yeah, because they're seeing and anticipating so many things on the field that don't even happen most of the time, but they need to be ready in case it does. So Shabi Alonso, as a defensive midfielder, is always thinking about what happens if his team loses the ball. Now, he plays for Spain and Bayern Munich, so they're probably not going to lose the ball. <laughs> but he's ready in case they do, and that's why he's so good. And well, you always have to be a few steps ahead of your opponent right. if you want to succeed. It's you know, and Chicharito the same way. Like in the box as a forward, if you're a fraction of a second anticipating things ahead of your defender, like where a cross might go or something like that, then that's all the advantage you need. But you just need to make sure you are. Now, I have to ask the one cool question. What's one thing you found out during the book that shocked you? As you finished the book, like, holy crap, I didn't realize blank. I didn't realize that the Mexican national team, and I spent a lot of time with their coach, Juan Carlos Osorio, and Chicharito Hernandez, actually jointly, where they gave away their set plays that they run, which are almost like basketball set plays. They call them systematic patterns, where... It's sort of a a choreography that they set up to try to get the ball to Chicharito in front of the goal. And everyone thinks that soccer is free-flowing and it's all improvisational. It's actually not. And there are patterns that teams run so that they have an idea of what comes next and they, all, they all have a style of play. Certain teams play defensive style, up the wing, cross into a, spe- a specific player. But literally, the Mexican <laughs> national team has basically set plays. And it's soccer, so it's not just like basketball, because you're going to lose the ball more easily sometimes, right. and then you do have to improvise. But they run these patterns, and they're in the book. They made me promise not to reveal them until May of 2018, because I actually got them <laughs> oh. from them last summer. <laughs> Ahead of the U.S. qualifier when they played the U.S. and they were worried I would share it with the U.S. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Grant. cool. Yeah. Let's not even go there, Grant. I know, I know. We'll get there, we'll get there in a second. But, like, literally, and there's diagrams. integrity state. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> and there's diagrams in the book about how they go about, literally, they have a, a design play that worked against Costa Rica in a World Cup qualifier just as they had drawn it up, just as they had trained it. Two years, that's how long it took you to do the book? Yeah. What gave you the idea to write the book? Because your, your buddy Sebastian Abbott was on it. Yeah. And he told us, like, he's on a treadmill. Read, he's like, wow, this, there's this Qatar thing does this. I'm going to yeah. write a book on this. When, when did you, like, you know what, I'm going to write a book on this subject? Because it is an insider soccer book. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was getting out of my comfort zone because I've been about storytelling more than anything in my career. And, I, and I, you know, I've been at Sports Illustrated for 22 years. Um, and I can certainly analyze a soccer game in writing, um, and I'm confident that I can do that. But I also never played the game at a really high level. I've never coached the game. And there were things that I, there are things that I think you can only get by playing the game at the highest level, that if you can share those tricks of the trade and those important things that you've learned, that if I could get that from these guys in this book and get it on paper and it was new to me, then it probably would be interesting to my readers too. The challenge was not to make it sort of a dry textbook that wasn't very interesting or some sort of you know, like soccer manual. I was going to ask you, who, do you, who would you say is a, like a target audience? It sounds like a coach and, or Yeah, I mean like what I've always tried soccer. to do when I write a magazine story for Sports Illustrated on soccer is to try to hit – a wide audience. So you always have to write stories that will interest soccer hardcores who watch the game every day, every week. But you, it's possible, I think, to also write that same story for someone who is a sports fan who might not watch much soccer but watches the World Cup or who gets into the World Cup and right. wants to know more or is a coach of their kid's team 
or as a kid playing this sport. There's a lot less swear words in this one than my first book. There's only one swear word in this entire book. There were like dozens and dozens. In the Beckham book, right? In the Beckham book I did back in 09. So like it's, I'm trying to hit a, a, a pretty wide audience, but also appeal to them. And I think you can find the right balance. I, I think I was able to do it. Was the book Good. fun to write? It was. It was. Uh, I wrote it over three and a half months last summer. Um, I always take a book leave. Uh, so I, there are some people who can have a full-time job and write a book on the side. I'm not one of them. I did do the interviews on the side okay. of my job. But um, it was a really fun experience just to sit down, and that was all I did for three and a half months was write. And, wow. uh, and, and the players in, in Martinez and Zork made it easy for me. Those guys bought into the idea of what I was doing. Um, they didn't ask for money. They were just really generous with their time and, and their willingness to share some things that maybe not everybody in their position would share. I'm sto- I'm actually really stoked to read it because I just got into soccer four years ago. And let me tell you this. I'll fanboy out now. I read you, obviously, when you wrote college basketball. I'm the biggest okay. college basketball guy. We'll get to that later on. Danny wants nothing to do with college basketball. Mm-hmm. He hates it. But uh, I'll tell you this. When I got into the – I got into soccer like four years ago hard. Like, I mean, all in, my third favorite sport, and I'm pissed Like now that I'm into it. I hate that I wake up early on Saturdays and I get upset ah. during games. But I needed to absorb and immerse myself into soccer. Yeah. I read so much of your articles because I needed a guy to read. And a few years ago, you, you, you're the soccer guy. Your name's heavy in soccer. <laughs> so I would Google you and I would probably like OSU and, and I'd read you and I read every article because I need to immerse myself because I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to get into this sport, I don't want to know three players. I need to know everybody about it. So I'm like beyond stoked to read this. Like, and uh, audiobook, did you do one? I did. Was first, it fun? First one I've ever done. I enjoyed it. Um, and it was something that uh, – it was just a good experience. I, and I, I think it helps to have your own podcast that you do. And, and I've done video essays for Fox and, and the delivery. Uh, you know, I didn't ham it up yeah. you know, too much. <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, like, you know, you put yourself into it and you have some fun with it. And, yeah, it was a good experience. Any coincidence that's near the World Cup that you're releasing it? That's oh, no coincidence. <laughs> None at all, right? Yeah, I mean, like, obviously it's a, it, obviously it's a bummer the U.S. didn't make it because, yeah. like, you know. U.S. didn't make it? Uh, <laughs> well, l- l- that's a perfect uh, transition because I'm going to ask you. You're going to the World Cup, obviously. You're going to yeah, Russia? Yeah, Did you get your it. fan ID or do you get something special? You know, I got a, a credential. Uh, uh, mine came yesterday, so yeah, I'm all yeah. stoked. I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm so going. going. To, oh, yeah, of course, of course. Awesome. I'm going to the opening match, Germany, Mexico, and then. Iran versus Morocco in oh, St. Wow. Petersburg. Yeah, I'm going to three games. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm all excited. I've never... You ever been to a World Cup before? No, never. I just started watching it four years ago. Okay. I mean, that's... You're going to have an experience. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, the World Cup is the greatest sporting event in the world, and it's even better than the Olympics, which I also like, but unlike the Olympics, the World Cup, everyone's eyeballs are focused on the same thing at the same time, and there's a real feeling when you are attending a World Cup that you are at the center of the universe, yeah. And it's a it's a cool feeling that you're sharing this global experience with humanity that you just don't get with anything else. Remember the old commercial? It's like wars have been stopped because of this. And you watch it, and I, I'll never forget because I was such a I'm like I was one of those anti soccer guys. Okay, I'm like oh yeah I'm sure. And then as I got in, like I've been to like sixty or seventy countries, yeah. and I've seen countries shut down when teams are playing. Sure. So it's insane. All right, so let me introduce Danny. So here he comes. Danny's my boss at work, yeah. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to bring him. So anytime a soccer Thanks. thing comes on, so I'm all in soccer. He'll call me up like 3 in the morning. I make the joke like, are you watching Denver high school soccer? So he's all in. If Honduras is playing Antarctica in a soccer match, he's watching it. He's breaking down the, why they're not subbing. So he was so stoked to have you on. So go with your questions with the famous Grant. <laughs> well, uh, first, I want to plug your podcast, uh, Planet Football. Thanks. It's, Great job! Uh, I was actually listening to a, an interview with Ray Hudson before we go into the actual soccer path, the, 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 the actual soccer stuff. Uh, you mentioned that you wanted to have a uh, sit-down dinner with Dick Vitale <laughs> and Ray Hudson. Oh yeah, That's, has it happened? It hasn't happened yet. Oh. I brought it up to both of them. Yeah, Dick's been on the show. I know, yeah. and and I brought it up to Dick on Twitter once, and he's like, "I'm in," and <laughs> and Ray's like, "I'm in." You know, they're both down in Florida. The you vocabulary know, might be too big for me if that <laughs> were ever happened. But think about this, like. It would be so freaking great just to be a fly on the wall 
I, I could just introduce these guys. Oh, you would, and I'm you not wouldn't have talk to say a word. Yeah, you, you wouldn't have to say a word. <laughs> but it would be the greatest night ever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And so that's one of my holy grail bucket list ideas that just basically needs to happen. I text with Dickie V. We're going to make this happen. Seriously. Awesome. He, he called into my show. He did like 20 minutes. We're going we're gonna to make this happen. I would love that. We have to make Dickie V happen. So now so, we'll, go, go, go. Are we, I was looking at uh, like some of your, uh, your stuff you've done. You started look in, your interest in like 1994, soccer. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a little bit earlier, but not much. Like 1990 was my big, uh, my big sort of intro to outdoor soccer. And did you play it as a child, a, as a kid? Or? I played as a kid. I quit at about 14, like okay. so many other kids. It's not because I didn't like the sport. It was just in high school I was doing other sports like basketball and, and track and cross country, and so I didn't play soccer, and yet. I really got into watching it. Uh, back in the 80s in Kansas City, where I grew up, uh, indoor soccer was big. There was yes. no outdoor league. And so the Kansas City Comets MISL team MISL. was my team. Yes. <laughs> and they used to play at the NASA Coliseum. Yeah. I mean, like in, in the New York Arrows were the best team in the league. They mm-hmm. had Steve Jungle, the lord of all indoors. I mean, like it was a fun league. Oh, absolutely. And then it died, like so many soccer leagues do. And I ended up um, watching the 1990 World Cup on Spanish-language television. Because, Which is the best way to watch soccer. Because I always tell this to Andres Cantor, who called every game of that tournament, yep. that he was my way into outdoor soccer in the World Cup because that I think Turner had that World Cup. It was the first U.S. Team, time the U.S. had been in the World Cup since 1950. Yep. But it was cable. My family didn't have cable. <laughs> and so I was watching them all in Spanish-language. And, and then I was in. And... You know, I ended up um, covering Bob Bradley's uh, Princeton soccer team as an undergrad for the school paper. Uh, he was really nice to a non-professional journalist, mm-hmm. uh, introduced me to some people. Um, I ended up uh, doing a scholarship project uh, in the summer of 94, the time the U.S. hosted the World Cup, uh, spending time in Argentina, first time I'd ever left the country around soccer culture there. And then coming to Boston to uh, do like magazine style reporting on the baseball culture in Boston, where Argentina was also playing during the World Cup when uh. Maradona got kicked out of the tournament for his you know drugs test, and then um, that I was in. I was a soccer guy at that point. Uh, I got to Sports Illustrated in '96, and no one else really wanted to cover soccer then. It wasn't popular. Uh, and so I was able to do that a little bit, got to cover the 98 World Cup. Um, it was funny because they sent three writers to cover the 98 World Cup. I was by far the most junior. I was like 24. And the other two writers ended up going home, one who had been covering the U.S., uh, which went out early in that horrible tournament, mm-hmm. and uh, the other one, Steve Russian, who ended up going back home after doing a, a road trip around France, and I think he was just kind of tired. And uh, it gave me the opportunity to cover the final that France won. Right. I wrote that as my first big uh, deadline story for Sports Illustrated magazine, and they liked it. And I was this, the soccer guy ever since. Wow, that's some move. That's some. You're 24. Yeah. World Cup. That's like hello world. I'm ready to roll. It was holy crap. Such a a, a memorable experience for me. I did. I made some rookie mistakes. Uh, the night of the final, <laughs> I didn't think France was going to win. Everyone thought Brazil would win. <laughs> and France ends up winning 3 nothing. And I didn't bring my laptop to the stadium, and which was a huge mistake. I, there was no website at the time. I didn't have to worry about that. But I, like, there were 3 million people in the streets of Paris. And my, my bus that was supposed to take me back to my laptop so I could write the story... Hours later. It wasn't moving. So I literally got out of the bus, and I walked five miles across Paris. And I'm writing the story in my head and stopping every once in a while to take notes. And I get back to the apartment at 5 a.m. and have to write the story of my life, which is a 2,500-word story, on deadline for a few hours later. On on memory, right? On memory. Yeah. And and it worked out. And so I I feel very positive about those memories now, but I was about to blow it, basically. (laughs) So you made the transition from college basketball into full soccer, because how long were you doing college basketball for? So I did college basketball from 96 to 09, and that was my main sport for Sports Illustrated. I grew up in Kansas with Kansas basketball. I I loved it. and yeah, sorry. He, he'll he'll text me. How about KU? I'm like, it's UK. 
not KU. We hate. <laughs> there's, K- a big, there's a big there's difference. There's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would do soccer on the side, uh, which was like summer tournaments, like the World Cup. And I loved the soccer stuff. And I loved the basketball stuff. But what I found was, over time, there wasn't. After 10 years of doing college basketball, there wasn't that much variety in the stories. You were always going to do the the one-and-done top freshman in the country who uh, was going to be on the cover, and it was always mm-hmm. nice to get cover stories, but their, their personal story wasn't always that different from the previous ones that you had done. And I would do these soccer stories about Didier Drogba and the Ivory Coast national team and how they helped solve a civil war, and you're like... I'm not writing those types of stories for basketball, covering college, college basketball, basketball right. you know, and I like to travel internationally and, and, and there just weren't that many soccer writers. And so I felt like I was doing something cool and different. And so I started to say to the people who run Sports Illustrated, I would love to cover soccer full time. If you ever have the demand. Mm-hmm. And finally they did in 2009 and you know, I went out in a nice way on college basketball. My last Final Four was Kansas winning the national mm. title. My parents loved that. They had both gone <laughs> to KU. And, you know, I went into soccer full-time, and it's kept me really busy ever since. Now, before Danny takes over with his, like, real – because he knows soccer. I'm just going at it as a beyond amateur fan. First of all, you should have stayed on three more years. You could have watched UK beat KU – in New Orleans when we beat... When oh, we I t- watched it. Yeah, yeah I, I went down there. I actually left work early to go down there. Was there a time... Because you said, hey, if you guys ever do it full-time, if you ever go all-in on soccer, was there a moment from the 90s up until 2009 when you're like, is soccer ever going to catch on and go heavy? Did you ever doubt yourself? Or did you know that, hey, eventually it's going to go? My reason for wanting to cover soccer full-time was not because I thought it was inevitable that soccer would become as popular as it is right now. I, I didn't think it was inevitable and so i'm tickled that soccer has grown to what it is right now in the u.s mm-hmm. um did you ever see it happening this much because it's, it's big it's huge i wasn't sure if soccer was going to end up being like track and fields where the u.s produced some of the best athletes in the world but it's not like pro track and field is a big deal in the united states you know you still go to europe for that and you and, only watch it every four years here, track right, and field. Right, and so I wasn't sure soccer was going to become like that. Mm-hmm. And MLS, I think, has done a lot to to change that as it's grown, and the new cities they brought in have really increased the level of ambition and commitment and spending. Did you read league. Danny's uh, cheat notes? Because watch this perfect transition oh, yeah? into the MLS. Yeah. That's what he wanted to talk about. So, Danny, enjoy. I'll, I'll just sit back now. Like, watch like you said experts. earlier, the uh, it's been very difficult to for the, I guess, as – Kids are growing up with soccer. Uh, I've spent the entire weekends on soccer fields and all this. But how do you? How would you introduce a non-soccer person to get involved in soccer that would allow the MLS to grow their fan base? Uh, we we go to soccer games and you you find the fans and the parents watching soccer. They love their kids playing, but. You can't talk a lick about soccer to any of the parents, unfortunately. I'm a big Red Bulls guy. Yeah. Follow the MLS through and through. How would you introduce a non-soccer adult to entice them to go, hey, let's, you know what, let's go to Red Bull Arena as a group and let's go watch a game? I mean, that's what I would do. I mean, I would just say, look, beer's on me, um, tailgate on me or whatever, and, and just go. And it's not like it's that expensive. No, it's, you know? it's, it's In definitely not. In relation to other sports. Right. I, mean. I agree um, with that. And I think, you know, I had a friend who uh, lives in, in Texas who started a thing called the free beer movement where he would, you know. It's the greatest it was, movement I've ever heard in my was, life. It was sort of a campaign <laughs> where, you know, and this was, they didn't have an MLS team in Austin yet where he lives. But um, they've. You know, he would take people to a bar and, and you know, buy them a beer and, and kind of introduce them to the culture right. of watching the game in a soccer bar. And it's fun to do that. Oh, it definitely you know? is. I'm a member of the American Outlaws in the yeah. Long Island chapter. It's the best way to watch a game by far. Yeah, it's a blast. Um, it is. Well, that's how I got into soccer. F- four years ago, it's the World Cup. Yeah. And I wasn't into it. And I was like one of those anti guys. I'm like, stop pushing it down my throat. I'm not watching it. I'm don't right. stop. I don't want to see a highlight of a horrible goal. I, I was anti <laughs> I lived in the East Village, and I was walking around. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch a World Cup game. And, I, and I'm German and Italian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was uh, 
East 7th and Avenue C, the whole block was shut down because Germany was about to play. Oh, wow. But Germany was going to play at 1. It was like 10 in the morning. I'm like, oh, I'll watch it. All in since then, hence the Bayern Munich thing. Uh-huh. We win the champion. I say we because like I watched it for one month now. But I was crying <laughs> when Germany played Argentina. But that's what happened. I went to it. I experienced it. I'm yeah. like, this is unbelievable. You also brought up Argentina. I went down there last year. My buddy's a big Boca Juniors fan. Okay. We did the tour down that's there. Yeah, I saw you, you wore the jersey because the game was on TV when they played River. Yeah. But that talking about going to another country to experience how they shut down because uh, we went to an Argentina World Cup qualifying match. Okay. And they gave me, like, I was wearing a jersey. And they stopped you on the street. They did sign the cross, like, playing. For, I'm like, yeah, I know. We're, tonight's the night, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we're playing tonight. <laughs> we got it, buddy. I promise you we're going to win. <laughs> uh, just to bring it back to the MLS, what, what do you um, – how, how do you picture or have you – what's your impression of the Ibrahimovic effect on MLS as compared to the Beckham? Uh, well, obviously, Beckham came in with the league was at a different level. Right. I would say they're, the MLS has grown much more since then. Um, what do you think his impact will be uh, to grow the sport in the, in the country? You know, I think Ibrahimovic is one of the few guys in world soccer in their 30s who you would want – to come to MLS right now. And especially on the, the small salary he's getting at just 1.5 million a year, it's a no-brainer. There's basically no risk for the LA Galaxy. This is public persona help, helps. A, and he's just his. such a, a giant, larger-than-life personality who yep. can back it up with what he does on the field. And that first game, the, the two goals he scored oh, yeah, in yes. that situation... <laughs> against their arch rival. You can't write a better script than that. Was absurd. It was in one game beyond anything just moment-wise that Beckham had ever done. And that's not to say that Beckham had a bad experience. I think Beckham overall ended up winning championships right. and brought a respect to MLS for MLS to, to a lot of people globally who didn't have that before Beckham signed. Um, the thing about Beckham that is probably different than any other player is just his giant celebrity status. status right. That the second he came to Los Angeles, there were so many people in America who knew David Beckham but didn't know a lick about soccer. Well, it's instant notoriety. I, I went to a right. game. I, I went to a Red Bulls game when they play at Giant Stadium, and it was Beckham's first game. I went to the game. My, Classic I, game. Yeah, I went there. I think he had yeah. a big corner or something. I went to that game. I'm like, I've never, went, but I wanted to see Beckham, and yeah. so it worked. Was and it five four. It, it was huge. Yeah, I'm was like, there was goals game. everywhere. Who said they don't score in this game? <laughs> hey, uh, can, can we go back to the World Cup thing? Because we were just talking about the World Cup, and especially yeah. now we're going to it. I'll make the question long so you can have a drink. Uh, the, the Trump effect with him tweeting now about the World Cup. How does that affect it? Because I want to. I know you were going to talk about it. What FIFA do you think? Mentioned that. Yeah. I mean, FIFA's concerned about that. It's interesting because FIFA has this reputation as one of the shadiest organizations in the world. Um, And so I understand that there's a certain American response, especially of like, wait, FIFA thinks this is shady? (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? And, And I get that. And yet it is true that it, like one of the basic rules is no government interference in stuff like this. And when a president of any country is threatening other countries, if you don't support our bid, right. you know, that's not going to go over well. <laughs> uh, and so what I'm trying to get a sense of, and I don't know yet, is if the organizers of this bid for World Cup 26, so that's USA, Canada, Mexico, yeah. You know, are they having to do damage control now because of these Trump tweets? Are they wishing he had not done that? Because clearly they had asked him to say something on their behalf. My guess is they weren't asking him to do it quite <laughs> that way. I think you have to script. When you, tell, when, you <laughs> you know? say, when you tell President Trump to say something, you probably have to script it a little bit for him. And so, yeah, I mean, like, it's, you know, the vote is going to be on June 13th. It's oh, the day of, before the World the Cup starts. The day before the World yeah. Cup starts. Holy it's crap. in Moscow. And each country has one vote, each member of FIFA. So it's different than previous votes where it was just like 24 dudes mm-hmm. uh, on the FIFA uh, executive committee. It's every single country has a vote. And so, it's the U.S. against you know, the North American bid against Morocco. So, so let's break, break the, the breaking news right now. Who is Grant Wall's pick? 
<laughs> for 2026. I the more I know, the less I I feel confident saying anything. Not acceptable. I mean, like the more I really? hear, it's you know you've already had countries like Western countries like France say they're going to vote for Morocco, <sighs> and you think I, that's just strictly based on politics, <sighs> or? I, I, I mean, I've never been to Morocco. Yeah. I've never been to Morocco. I don't know, Mike, if you've been to Morocco. I have. But I can't imagine that the infrastructure right. of Morocco and the uh, ability to host a tournament of this size, right. does it currently exist? Or is it like an Olympics where they go there, they build all these stadiums, and then they just flounder after that, whereas opposed to here in the United States, the stadiums will be full, right. the infrastructure's in, the stadiums are here. It's the best show on earth. Right. So Morocco is saying that they're going to use $15 billion, which is a large percentage of their GDP, to right. build the facilities, the stadiums, all the infrastructure that could host. Not you know, remember, remember, this is a 48-team tournament in right. 26, not a 32-team tournament like we'll see this year. And so I'm, gonna, you know, I'm an American, so I understand that people will take what I say as being biased in this situation, and okay, fine. Like... But that said, I'm a big, I'm very anti-waste. And I actually think the World Cups that took place in South Africa and in in Brazil built these white elephant stadiums with public money in countries with extreme amounts of poverty where that money would have been much better off going toward things that the country needs, not building stadiums that aren't even being used right now. It's, it's the same thing with like the Beijing Olympics. The stadiums sit empty, unrecognizable. Yeah, and I was just thinking, I was in Qatar, and they're building those stadiums from scratch, and they right. know, money's not an issue there, but right. they know that, that and if, after the World Cup, those, they're not really going to be doing anything with those stadiums much. My personal theory is they should have the World Cup in Germany every four years. Why, why is that? Why? Just because, like, they don't need to build stadiums. It's a great place to have the World Cup. I'm actually going to go there next week, by the way. And, then, like, <laughs> and you know, Germany's always going to be near the, you know, they're not going to get that much of an advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're always near the top of every World Cup anyway. I just, I hate waste. I, I think every Olympic should be in the same place every four okay, years. Okay. I, I, I just don't see the point. I also don't like that FIFA thinks it can demand all these concessions from a host country of, we, oh, we're not going to pay taxes. We're going to demand that you guys, city by city, pay for uh, it. Uh, provide all the security, all of the liability risk if there's like some terrorist event. Mm-hmm. And why should FIFA deserve that? It's it, they're basically holding up cities, Hostage. including in the U.S. Yeah. And so cities like Chicago that said we're not going to agree to that, or Vancouver that said we're not going to agree to that. I have respect for that. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they were like kind of uh, on the hook for that. Oh yeah, they, yeah. they expect their tournament being held basically for free, according to FIFA, and the, the city has to hold up all of the financial responsibility. And the result is is that FIFA obviously makes more money out of it. The, right. the men's World Cup is the only revenue producer for FIFA at this point, and they've been losing money in recent years. Now, this is why I also think the U.S. bid, the U.S. United bid with Canada and Mexico, is probably going to get it because the people who run FIFA right now want as much money as possible and they'll get more money if that world cup is in north america course, right. than if it is in morocco. morocco because they will set attendance records way beyond the current record which is still held by usa 94, 94 which is crazy tickets. and then they will get actually more money from the tv rights deals because that's already in contract uh, they'll get a heck, you know they'll get more sponsorship money fifa hasn't added a north american sponsor since before the FIFA scandal happened in 2015. The only sponsors they've added have been from Russia, China, and Qatar. And so they need U.S. sponsors to grow it and to to come back in. And, you know, the the president, this guy Infantino, is getting way more money from FIFA each year to every member nation. And so to, to be able to do that, they need as much money as possible. All right, we're talking about World Cup. Just say someone was going to put a few shekels down on the World Cup. And there was a bet. There was a bet where $100 can win you $190 if you win. So if you bet $100, you win $190. And the bet was one of the big three would win the World Cup. France, Brazil, Germany, the big three. That's on uh, according to Las Vegas. Would you take that bet? Um, $100 wins you $190, the big three. 
I would take that. Okay. Just, just maybe no, hold on. <laughs> the funny thing is, though, is I've got plenty to say about why I think France and Brazil will not win. Um, I think France has as much talent as anybody in the world, mm-hmm. but usually one out of every four or five games, they don't show up in games that matter. Okay. And so it's very hard, I think, to win uh, four straight knockout round games if you're France. I just don't see that happening. How about your Brazil? Is that because Neymar is a little knocked up? With Brazil, I I can't help but remember what happened in 2014 when they lost 7-1 Seven, yeah. to, to Germany. <laughs> and I think, yes, they've been terrific in World Cup qualifying in a very difficult South American tournament. They seem to have found some answers under the new coach, uh, this guy TJ, who's really good. But I don't see him doing it in Europe, and I don't think Neymar's going to be at his best. Um, I think Germany and Spain are the most likely teams to win. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of lame to pick Germany. I also think you look at their history. Germany, after the, the World Cup, after they've won a World Cup, has never done very well. Yeah, I actually saw, I read um, that because now I'm all in. I'm like, Germany's going to win. Yeah, I read that. Holy. And, and Spain is a team I've been on since December. And so a lot of people are on them now because they beat Argentina 6-1 to one recently. Without uh, Messi. Friendly. Uh, without Messi, granted. Um, but I, I look at Spain, and I think uh, that's a team that that can really – they're my pick to win. They've got the best goalkeeper in the world, in my opinion, De Gea. But beyond that, they're still Spain, and they've got a, a tremendous midfield. Uh, there are some questions at forward, but I think they're going to be good enough and uh, – you know, I think they're going to do it. Do you mind if we hit up a few more questions? Yeah. Because we, we, you're an MLS guy. Oh, yeah. And the MLS thing with me, and I'm again, Danny tries to get me into MLS, and maybe it's because I'm up till 1 in the morning. Watch, I watch every other sport. Yeah. So and I don't want to sound like an elitist because I just got into soccer, but I'm kind of push away MLS. I don't watch it, and I don't know why. I don't know what turns me off about it, but he was telling me, tell me about the comment they made about the MLS. with the and So you, you had an interview with Don Galber yeah. about a year ago. Yeah. He made a comment that uh, he sees in 20 years the MLS being the number one league in the country in the world. Do you agree with that? Um, I've always been fascinated by MLS because unlike any other league in the Americas, you know, there's some good leagues in Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, but none of those leagues are saying that they're aspiring to be one of the world's best leagues. Right. And so, how do you get if you're MLS from where you are now? to one of the best leagues in the world. And just this week, we saw yet another example of the one time that Mexican teams compete against MLS teams. And in the final of CONCACAF Was that the Toronto league, game? When I was 20, Toronto, he, told me he came in kicking stuff. Toronto yelling. loses to Chivas, and Mexico wins like its 10th or 12th straight Champions League. regional Champions League title. So if you're MLS, you can't say you're the best league in North America if you never win the CONCACAF championship. So sometimes I feel like I understand why MLS sets big goals and that gets people to invest big money. You have to set goals. If you tell them, oh, we're going to be the third best. Right. I mean, you can't say that either. But you really do have to be the best league in your continent before you can be one of the best leagues in the world. And it's going to be a challenge. You know, Garber said quite a bit that they want to be one of the world's top leagues by 2022 that's just four years away it's not happening and i don't see that happening and so you know when are you going to get there how are you going to do it are you going to loosen the purse strings and raise the salary cap so that you can compete to sign more of the top you know players in the world in their prime right and it's a process and it's i think it's tough to preach patience to a country that isn't used to showing Patience. All right. Let's yeah. do a little grab bag thing. Just random shit. Is that cool? Yeah. And there's a curse word for your book. <laughs> you tweeted about your wife's podcast, which was insane about opioids. Mm. <clears throat> what? And I know this is completely out of left field. Pe- That's people, cool. When people listen, like, why did you? Because I was fascinated with that. <clears throat> Opioid addiction runs in my family and stuff. So I listened to that. Dude, she knocked it out of the park. Where did that come from? I know this was out of nowhere. I'm looking at my notes. I wrote opioid. I'm like, oh, what? This Grant Wall, but tell me about your wife's thing because that was yeah, so fascinating. She's Celine Gounder. She's on Twitter at Celine Gounder. Um, she's an infectious disease doctor and journalist uh, who, um, in the past year and a half, what we've done as a couple is spend time living on uh, 
areas in the United States where she took a look at the map of the United States county by county and found it's a, a map that measures life expectancy. Hmm. And the areas that ha- show the lowest life expectancy in America, she wanted to go and spend two, three weeks at a time or more working in hospitals there to get a sense of what's happening on the ground in, in generally rural America. Wow. So a lot of these are Native American reservations. So we spent time in uh, on Apache Reservation. I wrote more than half my book on this Eastern Arizona Apache okay. Reservation. <laughs> and um, so we were there. Uh, she spent time in uh, Charleston, uh, West Virginia, which is an opioid mm-hmm. hit area. Um, she just wanted to learn as much as possible about it. And so her podcast has different series. It's called In Sickness and in Health. And it's so much better than my podcast. Like, like oh. I love my podcast. I love doing it. But it's like a, it's a straight interview every week. And, you know, it's fun. And But, like, she interviews, like, 20 people for each podcast. And it's, like, storytelling. And she finds these amazing people who endured all sorts of stuff and the people who are trying to treat it. Uh, in, you know, the case of the opioid crisis, people in Tennessee or Indiana. Yeah, or the Indiana one, that was intense. Yeah. Did she do Ohio also? I think she did. Yeah. Some, oh my, yeah, it was intense. And, like, and, and she, her voice is so soothing when she does it. Yeah, it's, it's so, I mean, it's so good and, and scary. I mean, like, and she's done other series as well. So, um, yeah, I'm really proud of her. Because that came out, I know that was out of nowhere, but the opioid thing, because you tweeted it, I'm like, oh, do I really want to hear it? Because like so many podcasts are just like, the opioid epidemic is bad. We get it. But she goes in, like she goes like all in with everything she does, she it seems. She wants to do different stuff than sort of the media shock value of, here are pictures of yeah. kids in a car with their passed out parents. Yeah. Like she actually wants <clears throat> to get into what's happening, why is it happening, and here are possible ways to fix it and what people are trying to do uh, and what may be preventing it from getting done. And so it's a really in-depth, interesting story. Yeah, it wasn't like a dry bell. Let me take a picture of needle in the arm. Okay, yeah. I don't care about the story. Yeah. It's like needle in the arm, let's get backstory. Can we get help for this dude? Like she goes, yeah, that's like really fascinating. How long has she been doing that podcast for? Um, a little over a year. And she likes doing it too? Yeah. And, and, Have uh, you been a guest on a podcast or no? Uh, my area of expertise is does not typically match up with with hers, but you know, like I, I I do support it by I go to these places like when she's living there, you know, and and so uh, I'm seeing what you know, hearing what she's seeing. I'm living out there doing my thing as much as I can. And what got you so vocal in the women's I don't want to say movement, but like women's soccer? You're so. Like you push it, you promote it. Is there not you're heavily re- involved in the equality of yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is I've covered women's soccer since I got to Sports Illustrated in the '90s, um, and I think the story of the growth of women's soccer and the success, winning world championships of the U.S. women's national team, uh, it's a great story. And there's so many interesting people who've been involved in it over the years, um, and they've had to fight a lot of times to right. get the support that they've gotten from the Federation. Well, I, I personally love watching the women's <laughs> soccer game. It's something that actually shocked me when I first started getting involved. But um, I watch the NWSL on TV. Unfortunately, they don't get the fan support that obviously the MLS group does. Right. The women's national team definitely does. I would say in some cases more than the men's team, um, in, in for, even for friendlies, because you, you can probably go to a women's friendly game and see more fans than you do for a men's friendly game for some reason but um do you ever see and, and what i've noticed is that foreign countries other countries have kind of caught up to the the women's game uh, for the u.s do you ever see that uh i guess completely leveling off as far as catching up to the women's u.s team potentially yeah i mean uh what you're seeing now and i think the the, the biggest story in women's soccer is globally the resources that are getting put into women's soccer, including in what we view as soccer countries that maybe had neglected women's soccer in the past. In case you don't know, Mike, uh, the the Premier League teams, many of them have uh, women's teams as well. I I actually didn't know that. Like Manchester United finally just announced that they're they're going to have a women's professional team, and they're sort of late to the game. Like Manchester City has a great women's program that they're putting more money into each year so I visited Carly Lloyd there when she was with Man City last year, and, and their facilities are insane <laughs> on the east side of Manchester, all this oil money. 
But what was cool was, was that unlike Bayern Munich, by the way, the, they use the same facilities for their women's team as they do for their men's team. Like Bayern doesn't do that. And there's a real level of respect. Like Carly Lloyd was like hanging out with Pep Guardiola, you know, and like it was, there was a full respect toward the women's game and what she was doing over there. And so if the, now that the English teams, the big clubs are starting to invest in women's <laughs> soccer, that's a great sign. Um, there's certain teams in France, Lyon, PSG. PSG, right. Uh, in Germany, there's respect for women's soccer. There's investment in some from some of the clubs. Um, and here in the U.S., uh, you know, the Portland Thorns draw really well, you know, upwards of 20,000 sometimes for their games. Um, and Portland's just a soccer city somehow or another. Oh, I'm not, yeah. I've never really are known the Timbers. The, Tim, well, the, the MLS version, yes, is the Timbers, but the, the women's are the Thorns. But uh, why is it that a, country, a city like Portland developed into such a soccer-specific city, whereas here in New York, where we can't, where we have such a multi-diverse area, the local MLS teams, although they have two MLS teams, they struggle to get even the attendance that they do in Portland. Yeah, I, I think Portland just has a lot of factors going for it. Maybe some of it is that it's. Um, it feels like a European city in some ways. Oh, I've like never in been. terms of like some of hipster, their hipster it's a little hipster, it's a little counterculture, it's um you know, it's certainly got a political bent to it. Uh I do think for whatever for a lot of different reasons, soccer in the United States is a little more left of where it is in other countries. Okay. Uh which is interesting. Um and in, in Portland another fascinating thing is is that the fans of the women's team there's not a ton of overlap with the fans of the men's team. Wait, so it's different fans? It's different fans. <laughs> and so, like, only tw- I was told that only 20% of the season ticket holders for the Timbers men's team... Go to Thorns? Go to our season ticket holders for the Thorns. Like, they've got their own fan base. And I didn't know Portland was that big, but, like, it's... It, when you go there, that is the most intense crowd in MLS... And it's not the biggest crowd because their stadium's only so big, but it's the most intense. Isn't the Seattle Sounders? They have a big fan base too, right? So yes. They, you know, they average over forty thousand a game. It feels major league in Seattle. They've been sort of supplanted by Atlanta in the last year, and Atlanta set the league record for attendance in a season. Um, they average in the 40s, but they seventy five the whole top. thing up, and they've gotten to yeah, Oh, my 70s. God, really? 70s. Oh, yeah. Um, I might suck it into the MLS now. I mean, like... I'm serious. I'm, I really might. I'm, what's interesting to me is is that, you know, the name of the league is Major League Soccer, and that's my sort of dividing line. Which cities in MLS actually feel... Does it feel Major League? And in Atlanta, Seattle, Portland, Toronto, L.A. to an extent, Kansas City, where I'm from, where it's a big sporting, thing. Yeah. Um, Not New England. No. Unfortunately, for That's some reason, revolution, they, right? they still yeah. play in Gillette Stadium, which when you see yeah. 12,000 people in that stadium, unfortunately, it's kind of when the, when the Metro Stars played at Giant Stadium. No, yeah. Let me ask you this. As I, I know nothing about this because you mentioned expansion to me. Is there any chance of them like, all right, get rid of this team. Let's go to it. You mentioned, is Nashville getting a team? Well, Nashville's getting a team and Miami. Beck, uh, the team of Miami is being backed by Beckham. Yeah. Um, but they're also going to announce a third team, which is going to be either Cincy, Sacramento, or Detroit. Looking like Cincinnati, which they deserve it because done really well for the U.S. Open, yeah. or the oh, U.S. Open okay, Cup. Okay, 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 okay. Um, and it's looking like we'll see. It's a big story that Columbus, an original league team, uh, may move to Austin next year, and the Columbus fans have a right to be upset. Hashtag Save the Crew. Exactly. Oh, is that it's a movement? And yes, it is. I, ended up, I was the guy who broke the story that they were considering moving to Austin. They were probably going to do it. And so um, we'll see what happens this year, but I think it's it's pretty likely they're going to go to Austin and people in Columbus really? are going to be upset. Well, now that free beer movement is where it's at. And now free beer <laughs> movement will at least have right. a team in Austin. So now we're going to do random questions. Okay. Cool. We'll finish up. Let's do it. Sounds good. China is offering people like $100 million. Is there any big player that's really going to go there? Um, Andres Iniesta is a pretty big player. Okay. Uh, it's looking like he probably will. Um, it's The Chinese money has gone down a little bit in the last year. They had a bad experience with Carlos Tevez, who was the highest paid player in the world and didn't work out. He went back to Argentina and the government in China is kind of like 
discouraging the gigantic salaries, but you're still going to see players like Iniesta go. After the World Cup for 2026, uh, for um, the upcoming World Cup, sorry, who do you think is the U.S. is going to select as their coach? After this World Cup? Yep. Um, it's interesting because both of them have big roles in my book. Uh, Juan Carlos Osorio, the Mexican coach. Really? Or Roberto Martinez, the Belgium coach. Hmm. Um, I think they'd be good choices. Um, I think they both would be interesting. Do you think he would actually switch from the Mexican Yes. to the U.S. side? Yes, because the, he knows the Mexican national team job is a finite job just by its nature. He knows the media there doesn't like him, in part, I think, because he's not Mexican. Right. He's Colombian. Yep. Um, like and, me. And so, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, Osorio has history in the U.S. He's coached in MLS. He also has history in Europe. He's been at Man City. I think he's a guy who knows CONCACAF well and won't put the U.S. in a situation where it fails to qualify from CONCACAF. Um, but Roberto Martinez has had, you know, U.S. fans know him because he's done great work for ESPN during summer tournaments, mm-hmm. uh, World Cup in the year yep. over the years. Uh, he's coached American players like Tim Howard at Everton. Everton, yep. And he has a real affinity for the United States. Grant, you and I at a bar, we're hanging out. It's a non-soccer fan, so your name's not heavy. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, he's got the soccer phone I would want. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say depending on, you know, obviously there's a time difference with, with Europe. Uh, Jose Mourinho, probably. That's a heavy name. Yeah. That's a real heavy name. So if you text him, he texts you right back. Yeah. And when he wakes up. I mean, he'll, he'll get back to me pretty quickly. That's, that, that's a heavy name. I, I love asking people that. And I'm like, really? They can really text you? Because mine is like, oh, Julia. Like, <laughs> One game, college basketball and soccer. So it's a two-part question that you wish you can cover live. Any game in history that you wish you could have covered live? Um, I would say um, – for me, and remember, I'm a kid who grew up in Kansas. Mm-hmm. That would be the Danny Manning final in Kansas City when they won it all in 1988. Okay, how about a soccer one? One soccer match in history that you could have covered live. Like, this is you. You're live tweeting. It doesn't matter what year it is. The 1958 World Cup final won by Brazil starring a 17-year-old Pelé. Wow. That's a really good answer. Are you nervous? Your books come out tomorrow. You're reading reviews. Do you get nervous reading them? And do you read them? And don't lie because I've had Eric Lawson. I've had some heavy authors on and they're honest with me. So book comes out tomorrow. Do you go on Goodreads and like, oh. Here's what I would say. is like I'd be bummed out a little bit if it was like a negative review. But like I feel good about the book. And so I can't imagine what it would be like to actually – direct a movie that you didn't think was very good or write a book that you kind of knew wasn't very good and everyone's going to have an opinion um and in a sense i'm just glad that they're reviewing it um but i've also learned like you know there's no need to jump off a bridge or something just because somebody has an opinion you want to go or just one last question you're with fox sports and uh we're a month out from the uh the final of champions league What's your prediction for the uh, UEFA Champions League? And at this point, it's really hard to pick against Real Madrid. This is a team that's had a crappy league season. Yep. They're nowhere close in La Liga, and yet they've won me over. I mean, like, what they did to Juventus, uh, what they've done to Bayern in the first leg, um, it's, it's almost as if there's this aura around Real Madrid at this point these intangibles almost like a destin that they're going to find a way in champions league and so much the opposite of the real madrid galacticos teams from 15 years ago which had more stars you know they had zidane and figo and ronaldo and beckham and all you know roberto carlos all those guys and they never won champions league uh with most of those guys and and now it seems like they can do no wrong in Champions League. They're about to potentially win a third straight, four out of five. Right. And you have to – I've always thought that – I've always been more of a Messi guy than a Ronaldo guy. And so am I. But – because I think what Messi does is genius, and I don't use that word with what Ronaldo does, even though I respect what he does. 
And yet, when you see what he's winning, it's pretty hard to argue with that. See, and everyone uses it, bringing it back to the Kobe-LeBron thing. Kobe's the best. LeBron makes his players better. That's always the argument of a non-soccer guy. Okay, here we go. We're going to finish up with three hard ones. All right. Your opinion of Coach Cal, knowing I'm a Kentucky guy. Okay. And you're a college basketball guy still. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I always had great experiences with Cal. Um, I did a big story for Sports Illustrated on the dribble drive motion offense back in 08. And was that was when he was at Memphis still? He was right? at Memphis <clears> with Tariq Evans. Got, yeah, yeah, and the story ended up being about so much more than an offense. And I loved stories about that because it ended up being about people. And the guy who he had connected with who originated the offense was this random coach named Vance Wahlberg who had been in Fresno, California and the story ends up being about how Cal was willing to sort of listen to this guy who like became this guru in a sense and then it got passed along and it became the offense that so many high schools and colleges used around the country and um you know, I wasn't like doing some investigative report about oh, is Cal's recruiting shady or not? Oh, and, oh, and, <laughs> and, no, look, and, and look, people have certainly done those stories, and, and in Cal we trust. That's what, uh, that's what's uh, and so carved I, on my neck. I think that's probably why um, he and I got along really well after that story, is because it was a great, like this. The, the human story was a really interesting story, and he was willing to share that with me. And, um, and I have a lot of respect for Cal and what he's achieved, um, you know, and, and that he's done it for so long in a very cutthroat business. One cool Naya story, because I'm, I'm a Bayern Munich, Germany guy. One cool what story? Nyar story. Oh, Manuel. Yes. One, uh, good, one good story about him, because you hung out with him. You did the books on him. Just one cool thing about there's him. There's a quote in the book He's the only athlete I've ever interviewed who used the term Pythagoras in a quote. <laughs> and this is like his second language in English. <laughs> I sound dumb because I have no idea what he's talking about. He, he, actually, there's a quote in my book from Manuel Neuer. Pythagoras would have been a great goalkeeper because he's talking about angles. And, oh, God. And really? A mathematician? Like, yeah. And, and, and so, like, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait, did you just say that? And is that really what a goalie's thinking about when the shot from Messi is coming over the wall? Right, right. I mean, How like, cool is that? And and so it was just really fun. He was clearly relaxed with me, and and uh, I, I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed these interviews with these guys because I learned so much because they trusted me to to share the information in the right way, and they gave away some secrets, wow. you know, about little tricks of the trade that. Uh, not everybody is, is willing to do in this business. Where does uh, Neymar play next year? Where? It's um, a great question. At this point, I know that Real Madrid is going to push so hard for him this summer. Not in the MLS? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> He'll be starring for Miami in four yeah. years. <laughs> uh, but I, I also know, you know how, how this works in soccer it's always down to the players. Where do you want to play? And if Neymar decides that he's going to Real Madrid, he will force that move. And I, from everything I'm hearing, it hasn't gone the way he's wanted it to at PSG. He's done a lot of things that show he's not really invested yeah, there. Didn't he not go to one of he the games? He didn't come back for the game where they clinched the league title. Uh, he's been in Brazil the last couple months recovering from the, the surgery. And there's a real there's a backlash that's forming there, and um, you know I, I you look at, at Real Madrid and uh, I don't know how much longer Ronaldo's going to be there. I don't know if Neymar and Ronaldo would be on the same team. Um, hmm. Oh my God! Can't even think about that. I think I could see I could see Real Madrid getting them. And I know I kept you here for an hour. Can I ask you one last thing? Yes. Because the coolest thing, which I didn't know until this morning. Is that because uh, I googled right before I left? I googled you, Wikipedia. Yeah. Everything on the internet is true, Grant. So everything I read about you is true. The famous Sports Illustrated cover, the chosen one. You wrote that story. Yeah. So can I ask you um, a two-part question? Because I'm, like I said, I'm a basketball guy. When they tell you, "Hey, Grant, you're going to go to Akron, Ohio. You're going to cover a high school basketball guy," are you like, "Are you? Come on, another." 
high school guy? Are you thinking like this is nothing? Like how does that process work when you get that call? So it was the, it worked in the other direction. I pitched the story. Oh, you pitched LeBron? And I, and I said, look, um, this guy, LeBron James, had a good summer last year, and he sort of replaced Lenny Cook as the number one prospect in the country. There's a great documentary film on Lenny Cook where there's actually footage of this famous game that they had played against each other at ABCD. And so this was early January of 2002, um, and LeBron was sort of starting to become a an Ohio legend at that point. And you knew this kid was going to be really good. I made some calls and, um, you know, I think Danny Ainge in that story told me, cause he was with the Celtics then said, there are only two or three players in, in the NBA that I would not trade right now to get LeBron. who was a high school junior, by wow. the way, mm-hmm. at that time. And, other you know things like Sonny Vaccaro from Nike was was going after. Um, was he with Adidas at that point? I think he was with Adidas at that point. Uh, you know he was really open about how much he was pushing for LeBron. He was telling me, "Oh, this could be a twenty million dollars shoe deal." It ended up being a ninety million dollars shoe deal with Nike that he got, and it, the timing seemed right. And so much of that story, stories like that, are timing. Um, and I wasn't the one who suggested putting him on the cover of the magazine, but it was a risk. You know, he was only a junior in high school, and it was during the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. So an Olympics in the United States, I assume they would put the Olympics on the cover. It got back. So LeBron bounced the Olympics? I didn't know that. During the, the I didn't know that at all. Olympics. Wow. And um, I had I, I, gotten some wind from the New York City office that it was possible as a cover um, if we got all the stuff we were looking for. And I remember being at a, drive, a McDonald's drive-thru in Akron with LeBron and just said to him, I, I think we got a chance here at the cover. And, and if that happens, that will impact your life, my friend. And, uh, and it was... I got a lot of memories from that trip. I mean, like, I went back actually... Uh, two weeks later to Trenton to see the now classic high school game between LeBron and Carmelo's. But this was, um, Jesus, what's the name of the, the team? Oak Hill. Carme- Oak Hill. Oak, Oak Hill Academy Hill. from Mouth of Wilson, Virginia. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the basketball factory <laughs> exactly. that is Oak Hill. But that was a classic game mm-hmm. and, and kind of the, you know, the bird magic game of their generation. Mm-hmm. And they both were amazing and, and, it was the weekend of uh, All-Star Weekend in Philadelphia nearby, and LeBron was wearing these shoes that Kobe gave him. And, like, it was just a really cool thing that was going on. But, like, to LeBron's credit, he, he g- had given me a lot of access in Akron. I spent time with him and Maverick Carter in, in his, you know, LeBron's family's apartment, which was pretty pretty small and in a pretty rough part of town. And, and the whole situation was odd because here we were talking about you know, million dollar shoe deals, multi-million dollar shoe deals. And yet if he had gotten, if he had broken his leg, he would have been still living in that part of town. And there were no guarantees on any of it. Now let's take down the wall. How does that call happen? Because how many cover stories have you had? Because we tried to look it up. It's a lot. Uh, Because I covered college basketball. And so, you know, every year you were guaranteed probably a few. The the chosen one is... Like, I still remember it. I, like, he's sitting there in the black background with the headband on. It yeah. says, The Chosen One. He got a tattoo that says, yeah. The Chosen One. Like, how do you get the call? Hey, by the way, your story's on the cover. Is that how it happens? You get a phone call? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then it's neat to share that with the people that you've written about, someone you've written about. Um, and a high school junior telling them, Hey, dude, by the way, you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And, and, at that point, there's an excitement, but there's also a bit of like, a, Did we just ruin the kid's life? You know? I mean, like, we didn't, but it did change his life. You know, he, you know he's talked about this a little bit. Uh, there's a documentary on LeBron mm-hmm. that he talks about this some. Um, and I'm in it. I mean, like, it's, um, you know, suddenly he had all these Sports Illustrated magazines shoved in his face where people were asking him to autograph it, you know? And, you know, and then his senior year, there was all sorts of stuff going on 
with nationally televised games. And then Mitchell and has jerseys and he's getting suspended. Yeah. Oh. And, and, you know, like, it's kind of incredible that he made it in a sense because there was this gauntlet of stuff that he had to deal with, which I guess in a sense every star in today's and then there, that media culture has to deal with. I find it interesting that at that same time I was writing about Freddie Adu, the soccer player. Soccer superstar, supposedly. Who didn't make it. And you realize that there are no guarantees. And so when people bring up the LeBron stuff, I'm really proud of that story. But I was also writing about Freddie Adu at the time. And we don't know who's going to make it. LeBron might not have made it. Of course not. Because listen, let's be honest. How many guys are there? Lenny Cook. You can name. Right. I can name a hundred because I'm a New York City legend. That Felipe Lopez comes on here all the time. Sebastian Telfair. Yeah. Old. Well, we just got arrested for like thirty guns <laughs> in the car in Brooklyn. <laughs> but Felipe Lopez, I can name eighty New York's legend. Omar Cook. These yeah. legends of New York who did fizzled out and did nothing. And the second guy, Freddie Adu. We're gonna finish with this because I remember reading about this kid. I'm like fourteen. And I didn't know that, like, you know, Messi was, like, taken from Argentina at such a young age into the factory. I didn't know about any of that. I'm like, this Freddie Adu is going to be the greatest player ever. And it's like, hey, about this Freddie Adu, you never heard of him again, really. Whatever happened to Freddie Adu, by the way? He is playing uh, minor league soccer for the team in Las Vegas. Okay. Uh, I think he's he's been on 14 teams in 15 years. He's in Europe uh, for a little while too, right? He was in Europe. I did a story for Sports Illustrated in 2010 when he was on loan with a team in Greece, and it was clear he wasn't going to make the 2010 World Cup team. But then he'd have these flashes, these moments. He started the 2011 Gold Cup final against Mexico for the U.S. and was probably the best U.S. player in that game. Hmm. They lost 4-2, to two, but it was a great game. And there, he had those moments at, from time to time with the national team where you're like, whoa, maybe he does have it. And... He can never do it at club level on a day-to-day basis. And if you can't do that, you're just not going to have a career. I'm right, going to finish with this, man. Like I said, for the past four years, I've been reading you so much. And I didn't know I read you so much back in the day. That's what bothered me. when I, I'm like, he's a college basketball guy. And then you, you Google him. I'm like, I read this guy's stuff. I knew this guy was. He's a Kansas fan, which bothers me. But I read his <laughs> stuff. But really, for the past four years, I read so much about you because I had to immerse myself into soccer. And I probably wrote to you around like – realistically probably 50 times on Twitter but here's what I do I'll write to someone on Twitter I wait like an hour no one responds nope. then I delete the tweet yeah. you don't want to like if you click my name like I wrote to 80 people to come on the podcast yeah. the fact you came on blew, it blew my mind awesome wow. and I gotta tell you this and I know you know this you're at Smithfield I know you hang out there Sebastian told us there you have your book signing tonight Julia so we have to put the podcast up tonight So, he, <laughs> but um, your name is so heavy in the soccer world because every soccer person that we know when I told him that you were coming on, dude, it was like, are you kidding? Like, everyone, the ESPN guys, Dan, like the NYPD soccer goalie Joe who didn't show up. Like, all these dudes, I told him you were coming on. Your name is so heavy, man. So for you to come on, beyond an honor for me, man. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I hope you had fun. Oh, yeah. No, you, this has been a blast, Great, guys. good. Thank you for coming.